Yeah. <laughs> it can event. Yeah. I'm in the search for peace at least. Hey everybody, welcome to the show, Community Spread. I'm your host, Kevin Lundell. On the pod today, we have a good friend of mine, Ashton Olivier Gabrielson. And Ashton is going to bring a really unique perspective to the podcast because she grew up in the South, in Louisiana, where she got to experience or had to experience racism in a way that I think lots of us haven't thought about uh, and certainly hadn't, haven't heard personal experiences and personal stories from in a way that Ashton is able to uh, share some of those. So I'm really happy she was able to come on the podcast and share those experiences with us so that we can continue to learn and to grow and become better, better humans, uh, so that we can have a more fair, equitable, and just society. Now's the moment where I get to tell you a little bit about what I'm thinking about or what I'm feeling. And, you know... When you guys hear this podcast, we will have less than two weeks until the election. And I distinctly remember the feeling four years ago when Donald Trump got elected. And I remember just being devastated. I remember coming in to coach CrossFit the next morning and sitting in my car at 4.30 in the morning, hardly have slept the night before, and thinking, how do I go in? and not show it on my face? How do I go in and give people a a good, uh, uplifting start to their day after we've experienced uh, just such a heartbreaking defeat in that election? And I remember being sad. And I actually, and I think back about that, and I think it may have been an underreaction. When we look at what's taken place over the last four years, uh, let's look at immigration, kids being put in cages, separated from their parents, Some of them still not reunited. Trump ending DACA. Uh, These are are undocumented Americans who've lived in this country their entire life, still at risk um, from the courts in future cases of having to be deported. These are Americans. Uh, Trans people are no longer able to serve in the military. Cuts to food stamps. Tax breaks for the wealthy at the same time as we are cutting food stamps. Um... The constant lying, the betrayals, the racism. Think about uh, shithole countries. Trump actually said that he wants less people of color in the suburbs. He's still fighting to take away our health care. You know, we're at 210,000 deaths from COVID, a lot of which can be contributed to a complete and total lack of leadership, a man that does not listen to science and only cares about himself and about his continuation of power. Now, I, what I think is really important is one of the great challenges for human society is, is to try to create a society that doesn't establish all its power at the top and maintain its power at the top and help those only interested in themselves at the top of the social ladder. Trump has done exactly that, helped himself and his powerful friends. We need to think about institutions, beliefs, and practices that push power downward and outward. The political party that is in control right now does not want to push power downward and outward. They want to consolidate power at the top. They want to continue to give tax breaks to the wealthy. They want those who are rich to remain rich and get richer. 
while those who are poor and, and suffering to continue to be poor and suffering. There is another party, uh, and that party is not perfect, but I firmly believe that uh, the country will head in that direction, that this party wants to uh, uphold those who are most vulnerable and try to give them the advantages to move upward and to provide things, their very necessities of life, so that they can indeed pull themselves up by their bootstraps. This is the kind of society I want to live in. I don't want to see power continue to be consolidated at the top. I don't want to see uh, where, uh, the continue the wage gap from the top to the bottom continue to grow larger and larger. I think it is a threat to our democracy. And so think about that as you go to the voting booth or you send in those ballots. It's happening fast. So get those ballots turned in. It's now to our conversation with Ashton. Look how far we don't came, we made it to this land to surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a brass. Spread the word, let it be known the heaven set us around. Right here, live in the flesh. Ashton, welcome to the pod. Hi. We're so excited to have you. Uh, for the listeners out there, Ashton is actually married to one of my childhood friends, James. I've known James since the third grade. And we have, we go, so we go back a long time. But Ashton and I, you know, we've, you know, as you do with friends that are from the third grade, you know, we hang out <laughs> yeah. some, but we, we haven't hung out a ton, you know? There's been that, we went to the hibachi place for Christmas the one time. And there, that one guy got like the Fifty Shades of Grey book and his face turned red. Like that was like peak, peak <laughs> Ogden, Utah. Yes, yes, I remember that. That was like white yeah. elephant gift was, that got, yeah, that got passed around to the, to the very conservative friend of ours. And he got Fifty Shades and was quite <laughs> I'm sorry, because I don't remember his name, but I thought that was the peak of the evening. Well, we, we will protect his identity on the pod. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're just hanging out with friends, it's not like you say, hey, Ashton, um, so you're from Louisiana. Tell me about racism in the South. <laughs> you would be surprised how many people actually do exactly that. Uh, there's like, I just had experiences like, I don't know, the, the racism in Utah is very different because there just aren't that many black people, right? And so I think a lot of times people feel emboldened, like, hey, like you're the only black person I've ever had any contact with. So I'm just going to ask you everything because I don't know anyone else. So I've definitely had that, like at a past job in the break room, one of the managers was just like, I've always wanted to ask you, like, where, where are you adopted from? And I was just oh. so confused because I was like, I've never been asked that question. Like, and I'd only been living in Utah for about like six months at that time. And I was just like, like, what do you mean? But then I like from the now like when people ask me dumb questions, I like fake like I'm stupid. Like, what do you mean? Why would you ask me that? <laughs> you know, that's a good way to <laughs> so, go about it. <laughs> yeah, but she was like, no, it's just that like you're just like really articulate. And it was like, well, I have a degree in English literature. So I would hope that I have a decent command. And she's like, well, you know, but like, so your parents, like, where are they from? Like, well, my dad's from Texas. My mom's from Louisiana. I just kept going on and on until she realized how dumb she was. It's a fun game to play. But, that is a fun yeah. game. 
but we're um, going to do that exact thing that we said. Like, yeah. Because you know, that's kind of what we do on this show is we're just like, hey. I'm here for it. Like, See, I like you, so you can ask me anything because I like awesome. you. <laughs> I've succeeded. Yeah. You're invited to the cookout, so. But really, that is kind of what we do on, on, on this podcast is we've had, you know, we have people on. We want to hear their mm-hmm. stories and their experiences because as you've already articulated, the um, yeah. a lot of our Utah folks here don't have a lot of experience with knowing and understanding racism and and uh just getting to know some some of that's past and we actually haven't had someone yeah. on the show from the south that grew up and and can had you hear that the sort banjos i can hear the, the banjos yes <laughs> <laughs> tell me about your family where you grew up and a little yeah. bit about what your background is sure so i grew up my nuclear family it's like my mom my dad sister my brother and me i was the baby i was very spoiled i loved it I grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which hashtag saved Lake Charles because two hurricanes have hit it and it's not good right now. So I grew up, Lake Charles is like an oil refinery town. There's like six oil refineries situated around a lake called Lake Charles. There's casinos. So um, we're about like 30 minutes from the Texas border. So it's a sort of this unique place because they bus people in from Houston to like go to casinos, these big Greyhound buses. And then there's always people in and out because of the oil refineries. So it's sort of like a transient community in the sense of like people there for like six months at a time and they go, you know, in and out. But the major industries there are the oil industries and the casinos. And most everyone works in those two industries. So my dad works, he worked at one of these refineries. And the nature of businesses like that, um, there was just a lot of like good old boyism and nepotism involved. And if you didn't work in any of those industries, then everything else is sort of like retail and food service. And so there's a huge situation between like, you know, if you work in the oil fields and you're making 80 to 100 grand a year versus everyone else who works in retail or whatever. So the community is like, and it's, there's this classism divide from people with money. And then the town is just very much segregated. Like I remember a few years ago, someone put out a map that each race, like on the census was one individual dot on this map. So you could see, and if you look at my hometown on this map, it's a clear line between the side of town that the white people live on and the side of town that black people live on. Like, like just straight the down city. the city. Yeah, just wow. in the, um, the north side of the town is where the black people live. The south side is where the white people live. And like It's like you can just see it on the map. And so I grew up sort of right did the in class, the middle did, of the class and race, like within the companies and the way the, the economy is, were those integrated or was it? No, it was very much like generally at the refineries, like guys who were like operators and engineers and stuff, like all of those guys were white. And the lower end of like manual labor, like scaffolding and mill rights and like all of that some of that was integrated but like management stuff was just very white (laughs) you couldn't yeah so I grew up in the middle of that my family grew up like pretty solidly middle class so my school is about like 60 40 black white and then the schools on the north side of town were all black and the schools on the south side of town were all white so you grew Um, up kind of in the middle of that line is what you're saying kind of like like, right there right in the middle of the town there was definitely like the white schools and the black schools and football games were crazy (laughs) like so interesting the yeah my middle school mascot was the rebels and they had a confederate flag like on the mascot (laughs) what 
Yeah, it's the FK White Rebels, and he's holding. He's got his Confederate like soldier hat on, and he's with his Rebel flag. He's, what? Yeah, <laughs> that went sale. Ch- has it, has like, it changed? Yeah. I think you know what. Let me Google it because I wonder. Now. I, it has to by now. It has to. Yeah, you would yeah. think, but then, but we're only talking like. <laughs> yeah, this was like what, how, twenty years ago. Twenty years yeah. ago. That is wild. Yeah, he has he has just a regular flag now. No, the Confederate flag and, is gone. They're yeah, gone. and it's not. <laughs> I think they just changed the. They're not the rebels anymore either. It's just oh. I, some sort of animal now. Progress huh. in your hometown. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I haven't looked at my middle school in a long time. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we were the FK White Rebels, and football games were very. And there was always this like sort of thing where all the athletes are black, right? I mean, no one minds cheering for black athletes, but you know, if they can't run a football, then yeah. So that was I don't know. It was weird. It was weird. Yeah. So you're kind of in the in the middle class, kind of you're in the middle of everything yeah. uh, there growing up. And your your dad's in the company. What's his experience there? He had broken into management. So my dad went to he was in the army. He was stationed in Germany for a few years. My brother was actually born in Germany. And then my mom was pregnant with me when they came back to the States. So he got a good job and he worked his way up over like about 12, 13 years. And then there were people who were unhappy about his advancement into um, like management, whatever. So on Martin Luther King's birthday, they all took turns shitting in a bucket. Oh, can I say shit? Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They all took turns shitting in a bucket and then um, cut the lock off of his work locker and then threw all of that in, right? And so... You know, over the course of time, he made lots of complaints. So this is like right after he gets a he gets a promotion. Yeah, and and they, then they were not happy about it, um, and he ended up. And I don't even think it was into management. I think it was just like it's been so long ago. But and he obviously tried to like shield me from some of his stuff. But it was like into like you know like a team lead type position because he was a millwright and so yeah he was moved into this like team lead sort of pseudo management position whatever there was also an incident and like obviously speculation right but um when you were leaving the refinery there was this sort of like long sloping curve and he rode a crotch rocket right and so every time he would leave the refinery he would like have gone through this curve and then like one day his brakes didn't work right uh, what? <laughs> right. So and your brakes just made, don't like go from not working yeah. to like not or from working to like not working at all. Exactly. And so he wore this like leather suit, like a armor suit, whatever, um, and like skinned the whole like side of that out and whatever. Yeah. So, so he started a lawsuit. <laughs> he started to sue them, and things got worse. Wow. So I'm a, I'm in the middle of a book right now, and this is kind of bringing some yeah. of this to life. I'm bring, I'm in the middle of a book right now called Cast. Um, mm-hmm. by Isabella Wilkerson, Isabella mm-hmm. Wilkerson, I think. Um, yeah. And uh, they talk, she talks about how there's these different casts. And when, when someone is, tries to move from one cast to another, the upper cast holds the power and, and then is yeah. able to put them back in their cast, regardless of whether they're moving up economically or social, or, you know, economically. Mm-hmm which your, your dad and your family is moving up economically, his coworkers were going to show him what cast he was in, regardless oh, of whether sure. he was moving up both professionally or and economically. Yeah. Um, and there is something like, so my dad always fought for like us kids too. So 
I would get in trouble in school a lot for like, I would finish all of my work in like 10 minutes and then bother everyone. Because your wicked's uh, hot. So, yeah. And so my, I remember my third grade teacher put a desk next to her desk. And when I was done with my work, I would go sit next to her like gray papers and like whatever. Um, and so we had a gifted program that was all white. <laughs> you know, um, and I went to an elementary school that was about 90% black. And the only kid in the gifted program was like the one white kid in my class, right? Uh, like there were no this other is, This is real. Black this is, this... Yeah. There's no other black students from this black school, the gifted program, right? And so my dad was like, we want to get her tested for the gifted program. And like, they would even offer like me the test, right? And so then my dad had me tested by a private psychiatrist and then brought that to the school board and was like, let her in or I'll sue you. And then surprised, here it was. I was in the gifted class, right? <laughs> um, and so it was very similar. Um, there was a lot of pushback on me, like being in the gifted program. Wow. Um, yeah, you experienced that personally. Yeah. So because they would bust, it was all the kids from all the different schools would be bused to this one school like twice a week to do like the gifted stuff, whatever. But I was like the only black kid on the bus, <laughs> you know, and there was very like the school that we were bused to was obviously like on the white side of town and like I was the only black kid in that on the days that I was there for the gifted classes like I was the only black in the whole school right? so I have a question I have a question about that what's that like you know yeah. because it's the it's the the parents and the power structure around the schooling that creates it yeah. that creates that were the were the kids like socially accepting of of you there or, or or was that built into it as well what was that what yeah, was it like for you being a friends or, or or peers with these with the other kids I think because I entered the gifted program when I was in third grade so there wasn't any I don't think we, we were all too young to care right yeah. and I went to school we all moved through the same middle school together and then the same in high school a few split off but um, I basically took all gifted classes with the same eight kids my whole life. And so we were friends, but like once we got to middle school, then it became like apparent what boundaries like couldn't be crossed because, you know, like one of my friends was having, who was like in the gifted class and like my best friend, you know, she had a birthday party that was a slumber party that she just had to straight out tell me that like her parents wouldn't allow me to spend the night at their house. like come over because I was black. We were old enough at that time that we could say that, right? You know, we we're like eight in seventh or eighth grade. And, you know, she was really embarrassed by it. I was really embarrassed by it. But it's like, what do you do? <laughs> you can't like, if this was a Disney movie, she would have invited me over anyway. And her parents would have, their hearts would have grown three sizes. But that's just <laughs> not, it's not reality. Yeah, I mean, it's and it shows us that uh, you know race and racism is a learned thing that that, that yeah. develops over time as people try to hold and maintain power structures, and, and that and that kids start to have that be part of them until later, you know. Yeah, and I think it was that sort of learning experience too of like when you go, oh yeah, my parents are racist, right? <laughs> you know, for her to yeah. tell me that she had yeah. to be like, I know. I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry my parents suck and they're racist, like, but here we are. Um, But those stories do overlap a little bit because my, when my dad started suing his employer, I was going to school with those guys' kids too. So then the social structure is sort of, it became that, like, obviously my dad was this troublemaker who was trying to get their dad fired because of whatever but I mean, over the course of his lawsuit, which it was, it was around seven years or five years, and he settled out of court. 
eventually because he'd like taken out a second mortgage in the house. He was just out of money. At one point, his lawyer was working for free. And so he got like his settlement and whatever. I woke up and it was like three in the morning. And my dad was like, you know, something's moved out, like don't leave the room, whatever. And there was like eight guys from his job who had climbed up onto the roof of our house and were firing shotguns on our roof. And like, we lived in the middle of town. <laughs> like this is, we did not live in the country. If you look at it on a map, it's of Lake Charles. It's like on Hodges Street, which is the dead center of town. Like if you think of like Liberty Park, you know, like an area like that. When the mm-hmm. cops investigate that, it's like, well, do you have any cameras? You know, and no one has cameras. And he can tell the cops was who exactly who the guys were. It's like, yeah, and I know like, these people. They were on my, they were on my, no, who yeah, would be on my I, firing I work shotguns. with him every day. Uh, this <laughs> no, is not a rando. He saw, he saw their face. Like he went, because we have guns. It's Louisiana, everybody has guns. Um, <laughs> so he like got his gun with, and him and my brother ran out. And they like, you know, he saw who they were. And they, you know, all of their wives said they were home and they hadn't left the house that night. It's nothing they could do. And so then they're emboldened by that because he's still going to work with these guys. It's like, hey, remember how last night you were on my roof firing shotguns and you see them in the break room the next day? I mean, this is like, this is like, you know, real civil rights story here. Like your your dad is, is, is trying to make professional advancement. The, the system. Yeah. Uh, or this co-workers and peers are trying to make his life hell so he can't get there and he's suing the yeah. company to to protect him. Yeah, and then like after the lawsuit was settled and all that, um, I guess there was the other thing that happened today. We bred bull mastiffs. They were decapitating cats and then throwing them over the fence into the dog kennels. And so like dogs will be dogs, you know, they would eviscerate these cat bodies and then my dad His co-workers were doing that? Yeah. I mean, who else would be doing it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, my dad and my brother would have to go out, like, and this happened, like, every day for a week. They would have to go out, like, every morning at, like, 5.30 in the morning and, like, clean up all of this stuff from the dog. <laughs> like, when I say it out loud, it's like, man, this is really fucked up. But, yeah. <laughs> totally. They were definitely emboldened by it, and the system did work in his favor. Um, no one would be deposed on his behalf. Um, the black people didn't want to because they didn't want the same thing to happen to them. Um, the white people didn't want to because they were the ones doing it. Um, and so, like, I think he went through three appeals of it, and like, he just didn't stop. And like, luckily, he had a good lawyer who was like, "Fuck it, this is so messed up. I'm going to do it for free." And wow. you know, his yeah. lawyer. That's what it takes to make progress yeah. in these sort of things, you know. Like And so his lawyer, I think it was last year or two of the lawsuit through all the filings and motions and appeals, whatever, he ended up just like, I'm not gonna let this go. So they reached a settlement out of court and then he was barred from like talking about the process, even with his own family. He was blacklisted from pretty much every refinery in the whole area and had to move to Texas to get a job. So at first he was commuting back and forth from Lake Charles to Houston, which is about uh, 180 miles. Um, every day, it's every day? Miles each, yeah. yeah, it's 180 miles each way. So it's about oh, yeah. yeah. So Houston's about two hours from Lake Charles. Uh, if you drive four like, four hours like, in a car every day, yeah. And so we were all still in school, so he didn't want to pull us out of school and move us to Texas. So he was doing that commute. But I mean, that amongst other things, whatever. I mean, it's a really big it, it like reason why my parents divorced. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize sort of the real world consequences of like 
screwing with a person mentally breaks down their whole life, their marriage, their relationships with family, all that stuff. Like my dad was pretty bad off. He, he definitely overcorrected on the spectrum. And like, you know, I was barred from having white friends because from his mindset, these are coworkers who he, we have been going to their kids' birthday parties. They're coming to our birthday parties. They're having beers after work, whatever. And then when it came down to do depositions, no one, they all pled the fifth and no one knew anything and whatever. And so he was just like, you know, you can't trust these people. They'll lie to your face. They'll be your friend. And then when it comes down to it, like they won't be there. Someone, someone catches you in an alley. Like these people won't stand up for you, right? So he definitely overcorrected a little bit of sort of sort of feels like a natural re- reaction to yeah. that so, you know like man it'd be hard to know who to trust and what to after everyone in yeah. your life every you know every, white, every white person like, in his life let him down in that moment and so and he's definitely this you know all this happened like 20 years ago he's definitely come back from that correction yeah. but um, i was about to ask it, how does he feel about you yeah. being married to a white guy <laughs> well, well i don't know it's always sort of the he would rather not right yeah. with my you know like if i was married to someone in the, in the clan that would be different but you know it's still sort of like that yeah i'd rather you not but yeah. at the same time like he'll james sits at the dinner table and like it's fun whatever yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so back on track. <laughs> James is a good yeah. guy, by the way. Um, did, He's did anything... so good. I love I him so much. Like, don't yeah. cut this part out. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, did anything? Did anything happen to the to the guys that were, you know, bullying oh, no. your dad at the time? No. Even after the settlement, like <laughs> no. it cost the company money eventually. Yeah, I mean, but it, um, still nothing happened to them. Yeah, I mean, when my dad walked away from all of this with not a lot. Um, like after paying back mortgages and lawyers, like there was not, we did not go off and buy a new house or even a new car. <laughs> like it, it was not a significant amount of money, but yeah, he like nothing ever happened. I mean, as far as I know, nothing ever yeah. happened. And yeah. I've tried to snoop because like my dad won't talk to me about a lot of stuff. You can see if you Google the lawsuit, you can see like the court filings and stuff mm-hmm. um, from appeals courts and stuff, but there, there isn't anything like publicly available about it. So your dad ends up having to commute a couple hours every day. This whole thing's taking yeah. a toll on him and on your family. What what are you going through at, at this time? At that point, it became sort of clear that like my dad had like left the family. Like all of a sudden he was like living in Houston and not coming back. Honestly, at that point, like my parents were fighting all the time. So I was chill about it. I was like, yeah, like get divorced, please. Like just, you know. My dad wanted me to move to Houston because I wasn't a legal adult yet in custody, right? And so he wanted me to be with him so he would have to pay child support. My mom wanted me to stay so she could get some child support because my mom was a stay-at-home mom for 23 years. Like, and then all of a sudden, she's divorced oh, and has hard. no job. and has yeah. She never had, had had a job for 23 years. What do you do, right? I decided um, at this point, I was, it was my senior year of high school. I was early enrolled at the university, so I would go to high school for like two hours in the morning and then go to university for the rest of the day. Circumstances beyond my control, I end up being driven to Houston in the middle of the night by my mom at like 3 a.m. <laughs> with all my shit in a bag and dropped off on my dad's doorstep. And I still had like, um, it was the week of finals for my first ever like semester of college. 
that's how I found out that I had two twin sisters that my dad had. He was with my stepmom now, who I love. They're great. Uh, but he had started a whole new family and like, boom. Whoa. And yeah. And so then I'm like, what the fuck? Like what? So real. Cause my life was like the Cosby show before any of this ever happened. Like yeah. we sat, we had dinner at the table every day and like blah, blah, blah. My dad was my best friend. I ended up, my poor stepmom at this point, <laughs> she's like, hey, um, here's this angsty, angry, confused teenage girl. I have to go to work. I'll be back. <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, and because my twin sisters, they were like six months old. And like, oh there's babies. Cool. Um, and there's like a Walmart across the street. So I'm like, um, I'm going to go to Walmart. I don't have like a toothbrush, whatever. And I called the cops and they're like, hey, you're 17, which technically in Louisiana and Texas at 17 it, you don't you can't sign contracts but you don't have to listen to your parents anymore like your parents can't legally tell you what to do so I was like wait so like I don't have to like emancipate myself or anything they're like nah you're good so then I called my high school English teacher because like she was the only other adult <laughs> at this point who hadn't like betrayed me um, and I used to babysit her, so I knew I babysit for her, so I knew her number. And I was like, "Hey, so I know it's six thirty in the morning at this point, but uh, I like this is what happened." And she wired me money to the Western Union at the Walmart, uh, like sixty bucks to buy a uh, bus ticket back to Lake Charles, and so they go back to this apartment and start packing my shit up. And my stepmom is like. Who's a wonderful woman and I love her. Like we're tight like glue. <laughs> but you know, at this point, she's like so like she obviously doesn't know what to do. And so she calls my dad and he's on speakerphone, like, don't go anywhere, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> Bye. Deuces. I called the cops to be like, I didn't want to hit my stepmom. Like I didn't know her, but she was like blocking the doorway. And I was like, you know, she won't let me leave. The cops show up, like, you have to let her leave. Like you can't. Like, this is literally kidnapping. Um, and I just couch searched for a few months after that. And then my grandma, um, my dad, like, doing a lot of all this stuff that was going on, had cut, like, a lot of family ties. Like, I still don't know what his beef was with my maternal grandparents, but I hadn't seen them since I was, like, maybe 10. And I literally had to, like, look their number up in the phone book. And, like, finally, I was just, like, I've run out of options here, you know. And my grandma was, like, come on, you know. I mean, it was my grandma. And she, like, uh, my grandpa died a few years ago. And my cry, it's very sad. But um, he, I worked a million jobs. I was working at the casino and. Uh, I was doing high school, college, working at the casino, waiting tables at a restaurant. And my grandpa would pick me up from my four to midnight shift at the casino. And like, he didn't believe in cell phones or anything, but he would just park outside the employee exit. He would just be there at midnight. And like, you know, when you work at a restaurant, like you're not done at midnight. You got to wash some dishes and roll some napkins and silverware, you know. And like every every time I walked out of that door, like he was always there. And it's like tan Lincoln, <laughs> just sitting there half asleep sometimes. But, you know, he made sure I got up and I went to school and I, gra- I actually graduated. I um, I kind of, when I got back, I just kind of screwed off the whole thing and was like, I'm just going to take some time. <laughs> and so 
I didn't go back to high school until I got uh, like basically like a letter from like, truancy, right? Um, and so I started going back to high school, but at that point, I just really didn't care. Um, I was taking, I was only taking like physics and AP English, whatever. I'm like, I'm in college already, like, screw <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so you hadn't um, actually graduated high school. You were in like early yeah, college enrollment. And then you had to kind yeah. of like go finish up a few classes. And Exactly. I ended up going to school. I did debate in high school and I loved it. And my honors college advisor at the university was like, you should join the debate team. They have a ton of money for scholarships. Like, yeah. And so I joined the debate team. I got a full ride scholarship and like, Rad. Uh, yeah, and they paid for like room and board books. And I eventually I became president of the debate team, which was even radder because it was more money. Um, but I what mean, college I did, is this? That you're uh, going to? McNeese State University in Lake Charles, go Cowboys. After like, after all that, I think like the, the hardest thing to negotiate was just sort of like sense of betrayal and loss and like, there were no mm. like adults guiding me through this like wow. formative whatever. Cause at that point, like both of my parents, I was kind of like arm's length, like not that we weren't talking, but like we weren't talking, you know? Um, and well, yeah, I mean, you went through like, three you, went through, you went through being in the middle of a, of a, of a divorce and your family, like as a guy that's been subpoenaed by his dad for a, for a suit, uh, yeah. for an alimony suit. I know a little bit about what that's like. Like it's, there's, there's the pain and, and hard feelings and um, I'm sure yeah. mistakes were made, you know? And so you're, you don't have them anymore. Um, and like, so you're, you're, you're just trying to grow up in, in that, process and how, how do you do it how yeah. do you, what what happens well um so there's there's a few things the debate team we were just the most ragtag bag of nerds <laughs> like all the gay kids who couldn't be gay who weren't out yet uh who who i mean they were out but they weren't out yet <laughs> not to <laughs> when themselves traveled, anyway <laughs> when we traveled to hotel rooms out of state they were very out <laughs> but, I see, I see. <laughs> you know when we were at home uh no and yeah it's so that i don't know because like my whole life in education like being the black kid who was in all these gifted classes whatever like um i was called like oreo or coconut right brown on the outside white on the inside like oh, yeah. too like you're too black to hang out with the white kids but too white to hang out with the black kids which this is why i love childish gambino he has a whole album about this like this feeling of like not knowing where you belong but like you want to be with your family because family is family but like mm. sometimes family don't act right either <laughs> right yeah. and this is so i very much had this like i don't really know where i belong and also this sort of guilt too that I was in all of these white spaces and I was the only black person there like and not like not like guilt but like imposter syndrome and then also like sort of wrestling with the idea of like well I know I belong here like I have the grades to prove it I have the awards to prove it like this isn't a white space this is like an educated kid's space like and like why am I the only black person here so like over the time like my thinking changed from like that I was intruding in this space to like no this is fucked up that I'm the only one here <laughs> it's like why am I the only one here right yeah right and, and I think your so, story speaks 
you know, the story that we've already heard speaks a little bit to why you're the only one there. Like, yeah. <laughs> like what were, what all of the obstacles that were in your way to get to that space, right? Like your yeah. dad and your family, you were in this like kind of what you called upper middle-class family, but is that is continually being trying to knock down by the yeah. system and you were unable to get in, you know, your dad had to fight like hell to oh, get yeah. you in the mean, gifted program. Only, and then like, I was only there because of affirmative action, right? <laughs> like people told me that to my face. Oh. Like that the only reason I had the scholarship and it's like, it's an endowment. All I have to do is commit to going to eight debate tournaments a semester. And like, you could do it too. But you know, people find out that I was like, you know, on the debate team and had the scholarship and it was clearly because I was black. Right. There's no way that I was actually like, and I won like awards every like at national tournaments and like debate and extent and impromptu and like I filled the boxes of trophies in a closet to prove it. And it's like nothing that I did was like really good enough to say that I had this space. Um, but I definitely did debate. McNeese, we were so close to the Louisiana Texas border that in the Texas Debate Society Charter. McNeese was the only school that was actually in the same district as the Texas schools. And so they were obviously much more diverse. Like Texas don't play, like there's Latinos everywhere, there's blacks everywhere. Like, you know, like the segregation in Texas is just a little bit different because there is such a large Hispanic population, you know. Um, and so then I started seeing all of these like other brown kids in the same spaces as me. And that really helped. And even if they weren't mm. necessarily black or whatever, like they were there and it was all of a sudden I was not in these white spaces anymore. So we were one of the only schools that we flew to tournaments. Like right, I went cool. to like 38 states with the debate team. Like every other weekend I was on a plane, I was going somewhere. And that obviously brought my horizons. Ironically enough, Utah was like the only place I had in on with the debate team um but yeah it going to just like see the world and like there's just something bigger than this little tiny racist town <laughs> wow and is that why why do like as you were i mean you're like go 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 through this thing probably just like yeah you know like is there a point when you look back and started processing um all of this with your family with the racism um, and also wh why do you think it, that you're the only, you know, black person in this, in this scene of, of smart kids? Um, I, yeah, I, there's a really good, uh, episode of revisionist history, a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about, um, just the segregation that happens in the education system. Like, um, so Brown versus the board of education was much larger than it was, um, they obviously decided to desegregate schools, but that meant that the burden was on black parents to get their kids to these white schools and black schools shut down and black teachers lost their jobs. And so then there was a class action lawsuit from all of the black teachers to the board of education. Like you can't just fire all of us. And they're like, yeah, but actually we can't. Um, and there's like just a lot of research. He talks about his podcast, but it's something like um, if a black male has a black teacher in their life like before like the fifth grade or something like their the rate of dropout falls like 20 percent like and like just having like a black teacher and then he asked the question like think about when was when did you have a black teacher the first time 
And for me, it wasn't into college. I, really? I didn't even have like, I'm sorry, my third grade teacher um, at that school that I went to. So let me backtrack that. I went to a school on the black side of town for pre-K, first, second, third. And so, but once I moved, once we moved out of the black side of town, we were in this whatever, I didn't have a black teacher again until college. Um, and I didn't even have like, they were all white. They weren't even like Asian or <laughs> Hispanic. They were all white. He talked about that and talked about um, just like the formative years of like a kid's life and, and what that does. But then also talks about just the innate prejudice. Of, it's the teachers who are picking the students to recommend to the gifted program. So how often is a white teacher recommending a black student into these programs? And even amongst black teachers, there is a discrepancy of who they are recommended into these gifted programs, right? Um, and then they did a bunch of studies on kids in the gifted programs where if you like take the data and look at it, like sometimes just the like the smart black kids who aren't even in the gifted program were outperforming the white kids in the gifted program. Because, you know, you put an eight-year-old in gifted, like not everyone <laughs> turns out, you know, five years Actually down the gifted. road. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's like, oh, well, you were put in here when you were in second grade and like now you're just in it. And then like that space could have easily gone to a black kid who was actually gifted, but who's going to recommend them into that program? Yeah. Now, useless. So, it's great. You know, you, you, despite all those headwinds, made it out of that, you know. I did. Pull, pulled yourself out by your bootstraps and have become this um, awesome, well-articulated uh, woman, powerful, powerful, strong woman. How do you feel about that? Um, sorry, what, you're a software engineer? Uh, is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> we didn't even so get to that yet. I'm in a very white space when I work uh, and a very male-dominated space when I work. The interesting thing is, is like, despite like all of that influence from your dad and your mom, like from yeah. a young, young age, like you all, you, then you had to face so much more because of racism yeah. and you had to like, you ended up yeah. having to like, well, there's also the discernment. And find, and find, you know, like ways to get scholarships. And like, I mean, you yeah. had to push and push and push in ways that like, just, just yeah, like it all helps those me. things came so easy for me. You know? uh, you're now, you know, I know you're, uh, you're definitely reunited with your family. And, and I, you, yeah. you just went back to, Louis, to Louisiana, to your hometown mm. where the hurricanes hit. Before you yeah. go, tell us about your hometown and what it's yeah. like there right now with the hurricanes. and. So, it's awful. So Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. All of their evacuees came to Lake Charles. And then three weeks later, Hurricane Rita hit. So now we're evacuating our town, plus all the evacuees from New Orleans. And like Rita just straight up demolished my whole town. And I worked at the Harris Casino. It, it sank. There was nothing left except the parking garage. So yeah, like everything sank and it was destroyed. And I lived through that. And that was my like, gotta get out of here because the next year there was hurricane gustav and hurricane ike back to back that at that point like we, we evacuated for gustav and it was pretty bad but then ike came a few weeks later and you're just out of money and at that point i was like i was married to someone who's not james um and we like we weren't married yet but we were living together um but yeah we had spent all of our money evacuating to dallas 
And so when Ike came, it was like, there just is no more money. FEMA has been bankrupt since Hurricane Rita. When Rita came, you like went to the Red Cross station and you got this debit card and they would put, it was like once a month, they would put 500 bucks on it. Um, so you could like pay for hotel rooms or, you know, food, whatever. Um, but after Katrina and Rita, FEMA had no more money for that. A few weeks ago, six, seven weeks ago, Hurricane Laura hit Lake Charles. It was a Category 5 and it made landfall, um, 160 mile per hour winds. I mean, there aren't any trees left. Like if you think there were, there used to be trees in my hometown. <laughs> there, there aren't very many left. And when I got there, it was a very weird feeling because when I lived through Rita, I was never like disconnected from it. Like we evacuated and we came back a few weeks later and we were in it. We were ripping carpet out of houses and smashing walls down. So when I went down there for Laura, um, I hadn't been home in a year because COVID, like usually I go home from Mardi Gras. Usually I go home around my birthday, like two or three times a year, just driving in and it's just destruction. <laughs> like it's like, I can't describe the feeling of like, there's just debris piled 11 feet hot. You know, you're driving down the street and it's you're driving down their quarter, like quarter of debris. Because when people got their houses, you just throw it out in onto the curb until they pick it up. And so even six weeks later, like all this debris hasn't been picked up. Um, the sewers are still blocked. There's still 40% of the town doesn't have electricity. None of none of them have internet yet. We, I flew home, uh, not last Monday, but a week before. And then that Friday, Hurricane Delta hit. And so unlike Laura, Delta was a lower, I think it was a category two when it made landfall, but dumped quite a bit of water. Um, and so- On top of if, devastation yeah. from the previous And so my hurricane. friend's house- been, her house has been gutted down to the studs. Like we cleaned up the yard, we ripped a, we ripped apart her deck with a crowbar and a hammer, <laughs> like because it, it was just waterlogged. The boards were just like falling off. I think it's yeah, interesting exactly. that you uh, you know you grew up there. You lived through all these other hurricanes and and yeah. that were getting, and then and but you were like even this one you were like my hometown yeah. have trees. You know <laughs> yeah. these storms these storms are different than your childhood storms that oh, even yeah. those were super devastating yeah and it was weird to um global warming's real vote that way um yeah. when i was a kid there was a we had an ice storm like that so we used to have like winter storms where the the rain uh it would be so cold that the rain would sort of like freeze onto tree branches and weigh them down and like break the trees so like just trees covered in sleet and that hasn't happened since I was a kid. The, the storms are different. I remember we never really evacuated for storms. Like my dad would stack the furniture on canned goods. So like if water got in the house, you're like, <laughs> we make a joke like it's a, t- a two can good storm, a three can good storm. What? And you just like, you stack the canned goods up, lift the couch, put it on. Like and you can't sit on the couch out, it'll fall yeah, over. Yeah. But you know, that's how you like save your furniture and you, you sandbag the front door and just ride it out. Right. And we lived in a brick house too. So it wasn't like, you know, we, we weren't living in like a double white trailer. <laughs> like the trailer is always the first to go. But, you know, you put plywood over the windows, you stack the furniture up, you sand back the doors, and you ride it out. You might be without power for a day or two, but it's, it's fine. And these storms are like, no, like you can't stay, like go. <laughs> like you, you cannot survive these 160 mile per hour wind storms. The, obviously the areas of town are disproportionately affected too like you know the white side of town got power back first 
you know, wow. they started working. They started working yeah. on that side of town and worked their way up. Wow, uh, things I yeah so, wouldn't have even thought about. Yeah, there's uh, the only open restaurants are on the white side of town. Like when mm. I was there, there was a, a McDonald's and a Sonic open um, on Country Club Road. Uh, so there you, you go. Can tell what kind of area Country Club Road is? That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, and I we can like double you. No, I. I get to skip therapy this week, right? Like this is therapy. <laughs> I I just like I really appreciate these conversations. I've I yeah. I've learned so much. I feel like I we could talk uh for ever and and just like we could absorb so much from your experience. Um and I, I hope I hope anybody out there that gets gets the opportunity to listen through this really understands uh the, the, your experience and learns from it and how we yeah. can just continually try to strive to create a better society and a better uh place for for all and people. also vote for a better society vote 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 mail in your Dem- ballot. D- democrat right that's what you're saying <laughs> yeah, yeah i mean <laughs> I, i'm clearly we don't pretend we don't pretend to be bipartisan yeah. on the show yeah 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 go by yeah. And that's it for our show today. Special thanks to Ashton for coming on and sharing her story with us. We want to give a shout out to August the Great for our theme music and also to Decker Yazi for our artwork. And if you like the pod today, share it with a friend. Just, you know, send it out to him, text it over to him, send him a link, do all the things, smash the subscribe button, rate us on iTunes. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks. The government supplying the people crack for chip. Brainwashing and folks, every single cat's asleep. Though that Jim Crow side effect trapped in a mind state. And it seemed like we had a peak of the crime rate. My brothers, yo, listen, our sisters go missing. And we down on the daily, some kill for the dime sake. I'd rather tell the truth while kicking this rhyme straight. Half the people illiterate, can't read or write. Try to enlighten them, they tell you we don't need your life. See how early we leave college, straight up to the gig. We don't get the graduate. We got trade up to the league with no second plan. Hoping we got it made into a gig. We need more doctors and lawyers, politicians and that. If you feel this in your heart, then I'm probably kicking the fat to shade. And they talk they ain't power and shout here. Everybody's dead broken and power and shout swear. I leave the everyday life based on mad wishes. The only jobs they have was provided by bad bitches. They'd rather get some brain and law that broad knowledge. Can't pay back selling me and we can't afford college. Around here the stick is always high so they bands. Crummy fuck the law. They'd rather leave and die for their gangs. They got nothing to lose but they sick with hate. Mad of the world. We got a bone to peak with faith. It's a white privilege. For the kids to the slave master, we were left for dead design to hit the great master. It's a setup, and we ain't meant to survive. Look how far we don't came, we made it to the slant of surprise. Though the prophecy says we all been to a bride. Spread the word, let it be known the heavens had to survive. Right here, live in the flesh. That's real. Americans ever got a ghetto. <laughs> Volume one. Yeah.